Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this is the third episode of a short series about AI in healthcare. The introduction outlines the global development of AI in healthcare and the potential impact of AI on the quality of life of patients. The second previous episode explains the current state of AI in radiology with the radiologist Wajin Kim, currently Chief Medical Information Officer at Nuance. And today's episode will be all about the use of AI in diabetes. In 2016, FDA approved the so-called artificial pancreas, Medtronic's Minimed, a hybrid closed-loop system for glucose measurements and insulin delivery. A lot of companies are developing AI-supported decision support systems for doctors and patients. So today, you will be able to hear a little bit about the complexity of diabetes, how it is treated, what role does glucose have on our health, and how is technology improving lives of patients with diabetes. I talked to Professor Dr. Tadej Batilino, the head of the Department of Pediatric Endocrinology, Diabetes and Metabolism at the University Children's Hospital, Ljubljana, Slovenia. Professor Batilino is, among other things, co-organizer of Advanced Technologies and Treatment of Diabetes Conference that provides a world-class platform for clinicians and scientists to present, discuss and exchange insights on the most rapidly evolving area of diabetes technology and treatments. He is also Chief Clinical Editor at Diabetes, Israeli-based developer of personalized diabetes management solutions. Dreamed Diabetes Advisor Pro Decision Support System received an FDA approval in 2018. Enjoy the show and do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the next episodes automatically. Coming up next are a discussion about the development of voice assistants in healthcare with Bill Rogers, the CEO of Orbita, the enterprise platform for voice and conversational AI for creating healthcare virtual assistants. And the last discussion in the series will touch upon AI in stroke research with experts Michel Livne and Vince Madai from Charité University Hospital in Berlin. For more information and content, do visit the podcast's website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com And if you like the show, as I always say, leave a rating or a review in iTunes. It really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Now, let's switch back to healthy food choices, glucose monitoring and AI in diabetes. Professor Bratellino, a few years ago, a friend of mine who is a biologist attended one of your lectures and you asked the students there what they eat for breakfast. And you said that the cereals are for birds, that fruits are for monkeys. So the best breakfast for humans is bacon and eggs. Care to comment? Yeah, so... This was probably a little bit of a joke because we probably discussed the Sunday breakfast, which I still believe that bacon and eggs is an excellent idea. For everyday breakfast, probably fruits, particularly apples, 
may be a very good idea, uh, especially if coupled with cheese or whatever gives you some proteins and some healthy fat. What what isn't a good idea though is juice. Is why because now there are almost every month a study is published that even mild hyperglycemia, higher blood glucose, in people without diabetes, so in healthy population, even a slight increase in the morning of glucose actually results in cognitive impairment over decades. So probably simple sugars are really not a good idea, also not for breakfast, or perhaps we don't know, even particularly not for breakfast. So a breakfast that consists of cereals or orange juice and croissant is a very poor idea for your brain. Nutritional science is changing very much over decades. It's only been less than 10 years when it became very publicly known that sugar is really bad and that fat is not as bad as the public thought for, for quite a few years. And one of the latest research, for example, shows that probiotics might be problematic because they can severely change the microbiotic uh, composition. So it's really, really hard for an individual to, 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 to think what to, who to listen to when it comes to nutrition. What would your advice be? You started to describe this as nutritional science. The problem is many things in nutrition aren't science. There is actually a lot of very poor science or even non-science in nutrition. Why? Because a lot of money is involved. So several big food producers actually would push so-called research to promote whatever they sell. And as you know, food is not controlled the same way that medicines are. In medicines, you probably cannot do this anymore because of the extreme stringency of clinical trials in medical development. Whereas in food, you can push through almost anything you want. And this is why, actually, and then also promote whatever results you get with big money behind, you know, through electronic media, through press, through television, with, with advertising. And there are many foods that have a label clinically tested, and there was no clinical testing behind it, Not not what... Physicians understand this clinical testing. So probably the best thing in whatever you decide to listen is moderation. Because, you know, food basically didn't change much in the last half a million years. The only real trouble in food is that the simple carbs that were non-existing several decades ago are now very abundant. And it is a very dangerous change. But the rest, you know, if you eat a little bit of raw vegetables, if possible, and if you add a good source of proteins to this, actually, you get a, probably everything that you need. So all the simple carbs are in excess of what you need. You may claim they're very good, which is important. So you moderately consume them. But basically, you have to understand that it's only good for taste or for pleasure if you want, not for you really, not for your body. 
In March, Eric Topol uh, wrote an opinion piece where he took part in a research that uh, did what you described before. So they measured the blood glucose levels of healthy individuals to try to figure out why are the glycemic spikes so different in individuals. This brings up the question, are healthy people also soon going to be using uh, the glucose monitors to basically um, get recommendations on what to eat and what not? Well, you know, I mean, health is described as well-being of your body, of your mind and of your soul. So if preoccupation with health or even preoccupation with eating becomes overwhelming, you lose your mind and soul part of your health. So I would certainly not recommend that every apparently healthy person would use a continuous glucose meter to ascertain basically what food is or is not appropriate. That would be a serious exaggeration in my view. And what I believe is that generally, if you discuss food with an individual, you can always dis describe what food choices, and there are many, are advisable and what food choices actually are less recommended or should be for this or that reason avoided. And then, you know, with this, you still leave every individual a considerable choice in what she or he likes, prefers, tastes better, or basically, you know, can tolerate better as a person. Then there are obviously genetic differences. And within, let's say, this group of apparently healthy individuals, this should do, basically. And if you add to this the weight, so if with this recommendation the weight is within the normal limit, And if physical activity is reasonable, what is reasonable? 20 minutes a day, maybe? Then very likely this person will do enough to protect her or his health, right? More than this, I believe, would be an exaggeration. And you have fanaticism all over the spectrum, either in physical activity or in healthy eating or in even, you know, extreme eating or in many of exclusional diets, including, you know, extreme vegetarianism, extreme veganism. And this is unfortunately popular because, you know, people have a lot of free time and do whatever they like. However, probably well-educated professionals would not suggest extremes. Glucose monitoring is extremely important when it comes to diabetes. And uh, from the general perspective, the awareness probably is that uh, people with diabetes need insulin. But of course, diabetes is way more complex than that. So let's just briefly start there. What kind of or how many different drugs do people with diabetes take? Just for an illustration. Well, this is a nice question because if you put this question five, ten years ago, the reply would be considerably shorter. This is the first part. And the second part is you said it's more complex than insulin. The problem is insulin is the most complex. If you are lucky enough that you don't need insulin for your diabetes, it gets considerably easier. 
At the moment, actually, we have probably groups of drugs that are really novel, maybe less than 10 years old, and extremely successful in type 2 diabetes, not only for regulating glucose, but also for for diminishing very important chronic complications of diabetes. So one group is GLP-1 agonists. This is a beautiful group. This is a gut hormone in people. And these drugs either replace it as with an analog uh, or, or in some cases block the enzyme that would decompose it in the, in the plasma. But this is becoming maybe less popular. But the agonists are extremely popular, very successful. They reduce weight also in addition to regulate glucose. And they generally do not induce hypoglycemia. So they don't put your sugar too low, lower than you would want. Very successful, very important group. And very recently, it's also an oral version of it. So you don't need injections anymore, despite the fact that this is a protein. And the second group that really got immense popularity and is also know well is SGLT2 inhibitors. And what they do is they inhibit the reabsorption of glucose in the kidney. And with this, you basically excrete with urine excessive glucose. And again, you lose weight because you're losing glucose. And the glucose in blood is better regulated. And they are also looks like considerably important effects on the kidney and on the heart, in addition to the glucose regulation. So this is now a completely different story, much more successful for people with type 2 diabetes. They do not need insulin. And also, actually, long-term outcomes are hoped to be considerably better. In addition to this, you have more traditional drugs, if you want, which is the metformin, for which we still are not sure how exactly it works, but has many beneficial effects on different parts of your or organ, organs of the body. But it has a mild effect on diabetes, it's not a very potent drug. It still stays as a base, but then, of course, you need other things very soon. It's the sulfonylureas. It's a very old, very inexpensive drug that works in a way that synthesizes body for, for insulin and stimulates its secretion until in type 2 that you still have your own insulin. But they do induce hypoglycemia quite often, so are not so popular anymore. Although there are now studies actually showing that they still have a limited place in this, in this if you want, new, new array of drugs that we can choose for people with diabetes. And new are coming, particularly combinations of those. So some are combinated with long-acting insulin even. So I think it's becoming a really interesting and uh, complex, if you want, for physicians, but considerably easier for people with diabetes. In Silicon Valley or in the US, uh, metformin is actually a popular drug used for longevity. Yes, but there are many, actually. It's growth hormone in this group and several vitamins and several antioxidants and also anti-lipid drugs. This is, again, you know, the part of the spectrum that may be related to too much money and too much free time, not really to the need of these people. There is no proof whatsoever that proof means 
cl clinical trial with the outcome of longevity, that metformin would do this. It actually seems to be a blocker of, of mitochondrial uh, turnover, or which may, of course, slow down several processes, some believe, including aging. This is the, the story behind. It was never proven. But then, you know, people do whatever. I mean, they are rich. They have a lot of free time, so they want to live forever. I'm not sure they will. In terms of technology and diabetes, probably the most known stories are the artificial pancreas or the hybrid artificial pancreas that was approved by the FDA in 2016. Given all the drugs that you just mentioned, what is the role of the artificial pancreas in diabetic patients? Uh, who is even appropriate to have it? And to which extent does that diminish the, the need for other medications? Basically, there is little relation between other medications and closed-loop insulin delivery because closed-loop insulin delivery is indicated to individuals that do not produce their own insulin. So they are insulin dependent. So they need to actually get external insulin to survive. All other drugs actually rely on your existing insulin. So closed-loop insulin delivery, in fact, in this particular hybrid closed-loop system that was FDA and European CE mark approved, basically helps that part of the insulin adjustments are done by the algorithm, by the artificial intelligence. And particularly during the night, because it only modulates the basal rate of insulin, this actually seems to be extremely successful. And since night is one third of the day, of course, it does have long-term implications. And additionally, the burden of decision-making, if you want, is, is considerably reduced, so people like it. We are now testing the next version of it, which also has a bolusing that's automated. So the new system, this is a National Institutes of Health financed research, so it's public money involved from the United States, uh, basically wants to show that if you add to this algorithm that modifies the basal rate of insulin, the bolusing part, the automated bolusing part, that the time in range, which is actually the new clinical outcome target, is even improved. And yes, in our experience, we see actually that these people that use the new system, the one that is in testing, in clinical testing, actually enables them to be more than 80% of time within the desired range, which is uh, between... 70 and 180 if you use milligram percent or 3.9 to 10 if you use millimoles per liter. And this, of course, is amazing. This is new, never before, actually. People with type 1 diabetes were able to maintain such a high proportion of time within the target range. And yes, as we know, you know, the, the longer you are in the near normal glucose range, the better is the long-term outcome. So it has a considerable impact on these individuals that have type 1 diabetes. This is still a hybrid version. So what does the patient still need to do and what's going to be improved with the new versions? What, what does the hybrid mean is that we still suggest that there is a pre-meal bolus given. What is a bolus? Let's just explain that a little bit. 
So people with type 1 diabetes actually usually use the basal bolus approach to therapy. Basal insulin is the one that is either given with a long-acting insulin or given by a continuous infusion of small doses of insulin and covers the basal needs, which means needs for insulin without eating. And a bolus is a, is a if you want, injection of insulin or through the through the automatic delivery, a speedy delivery of insulin that would cover your meal. And the thing is that since in people without diabetes, insulin is secreted from pancreas directly into blood, it's extremely quick. So we do not need a bolus before eating because when we start eating, the insulin starts secretion. It's immediately there in blood, so no delay, everything's fine. The rest... We give insulin for therapy subcutaneously. So it needs to actually dissolve and then it needs to enter the blood. It takes time before its action. And because of this delay, we still suggest to give a pre-mill bolus. So the insulin has time to come from the subcutaneous tissue to the blood and act when we start eating. And then, interestingly enough, the new system, even if, you know, Usually, we suggest a very precise carb counting and decision-making for this insulin. But if you have a, a hybrid closed loop that includes automated bolusing, the system would understand that, yes, so you gave a bolus, so you're eating. And if you didn't give enough, the system will add the rest. Or if you gave too much, the system will shut down insulin so that you can safely, or safer, I should say, probably, you know, go through the postprandial period, so the period after your meal. The hybrid actually name only means that we do suggest pre-meal boluses and that there are instances when hypoglycemia or too low glucose cannot be prevented, so you have to do something. So the, the development actually on this, so how to make this hybrid go away, is only with faster insulins or with implantable systems that would deliver insulin directly to the blood. I don't think we are very close to this solution. With faster insulins, we are closer to this solution. We can now use a faster analog already, also in, in Europe and in the United States, and several others are coming. So faster insulins will help us to reduce this need of pre-bolusing so it's actually really important how the pharmacology is going to be developing in parallel with technology. Extremely important. Extremely important. And the last thing is that you have a, a dual hormone systems, actually. So you have glucagon in some systems to prevent the other part. So when the glucose goes too low and usually you get an alarm, you have to eat, the system can administer glucagon, which is exactly the opposite action as compared to insulin. So it would increase your glucose. The problem of this dual system is that what happens if glucagon fails? Then you are in serious danger. So it's not very clear at what point actually such a dual hormone closed loop would be safe enough, consistent enough to be approved by the regulatory bodies in the United States and Europe. So, and of course, you know, you can also have glucagon now when the new glucagon analogs are being developed in a pen, and you can help yourself with a microdose of glucagon. This is the future directions of combination of modern pharmacology, modern 
drugs, modern analogs of existing drugs, in combination with with technology. NIH is currently uh, funding four studies about closed loop systems. Can you just explain a little bit what are the different uh, hypotheses or premises of these research projects? Do they differ? They actually differ in algorithms. This is the only difference, really. So they are, in this four NIH grants, actually, they are two systems that only use basal rate modification. So they just accelerate or decelerate the delivery of insulin. And there are two systems that also have automated boluses, our including. So our system gives both modification of basal rate and automated boluses. So we are one of these four uh, National Institutes of Health grants. The study is ongoing and will be probably last patient, last visit sometime early 2020. And others probably have plus minus the same timing. So, I mean, the Americans are really, really wise. So they will actually, they publicly funded this research to actually provide their people with the best solution because it will be extremely clear what is actually the best solution and they will market it. Because you have to understand whenever whenever National Institutes of Health is sponsoring or paying for research and FDA is right behind it. It's just another public organ, regulatory organ that really overviews very precisely, very closely the ongoing clinical research. So, so they will know immediately, is it safe? Is it efficient? Is it something that FDA would consider approving? How far are we from a solution that would take away the burden from patients to think about diabetes at all? I, I don't believe we can do this because even if a person is completely healthy, you still have to take health-related decisions every day. If you want a very simple example, you have to decide whether you smoke or not, or you have to decide how much alcohol you drink, if at all. And this basically impairs your driving ability, your working ability, your social interaction and everything. So there are always decisions you have to take during the day about it. Some are obviously easier and some are more difficult. And there are many chronic diseases where you have to actually change, modify your behavior because of this disease. So I do not really believe that a complete elimination of, you know, your thinking about your chronic disease is possible or desirable. However, there are many ways that I hope technology will help. In addition to the, let's say, automatic delivery of a drug, in this case, insulin, platforms that will assist your decision-making, so that will give you advice. Platforms that will actually follow up you so closely that will predict trouble and tells you ahead. Say, look, the way you go may be problematic in three hours. Change something, right? So these systems, this artificial intelligence that actually allows close monitoring of many activities of a person actually can prevent behavior is harmful, right? Mm -hmm. A very funny example of this was given at a conference. So let's say you're on continuous glucose monitoring, you're on GPS, and the monitor realizes your blood goes up 
and you are driving to the next McDonald's. Right? So the system cancels your credit card and you can't buy food. Very authoritarian. Exactly. I don't believe it's sane, right? And I don't believe it's the right way. But it's a very good example of how the system could work, right? Because the other way is that you get a message, please buy vegetables, not bread. Would you listen? Would you not listen? It's a good question. But there are obvious ways, actually, how, you know, this artificial intelligence can really follow you up closely. And there are means, actually, to give you advice, I hope, not not prohibitions. You're the chief clinical at DreamEd Diabetes that develops one of the platforms for advisory um, uh, systems to, to physicians, right? Can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on how the whole uh, disease management system has changed with the help of AI? What we now believe is that we need a digital clinic. We actually started to use this and in February 2020 in Madrid, there will be the first consensus on digital clinic where we want to set standards how artificial intelligence should be included into let's say, a clinical outpatient work with a person with diabetes. So number one is data analysis. You know, it's tedious, it's a lot of work, and if a system can help you analyze data and present data in a unified, which means whatever the device, whatever in a unified look, view, presentation, this will, of course, considerably ease the burden for the healthcare professional and for the person with diabetes, because, you know, it will always see the same presentation. So, And it makes sense because glucose is glucose, right? So, and then insulin is insulin and whatever additional medicine you're taking should be, should be the same. And then, of course, if you go a step further, you will have an advisor. So you, you will say to the system, okay, I know this now, what is your opinion? And how we test such a platform is that we, in a double-blinded fashion, compare the decision of the system to decisions of different diabetologists around the world. And this is the study that was nicknamed Advice for You and was actually a multinational trial where patients were randomized to either the decision made by the diabetologist, by the specialist, or the decision made by the computer. And we will compare the outcomes. And if it actually finally turns out the computer is as good, as good is enough. If the computer is as good as diabetologists from Yale, from Harvard, from Minnesota, and if you want, from Slovenia, then we made it. Then actually all of a sudden we have in our team one additional specialist for diabetes, in this case a computer. Obviously. This is only a suggestion. The final decision should be taken either by the healthcare professional or, in next stage, by the individual with diabetes. You mentioned an important point, which is that technology is meant as a decision support system, not decision-making system. This is all good when we're talking about how doctors are still going to be needed, that AI is not going to replace doctors because it's just helping them make better decisions. But the big problem comes if there is a mistake and then technology gets blamed. So how do you see the problem of liability in technology and medical decision-making? It's probably easier than you 
imagine because, as you know, actually, every artificial intelligence suggestion has to be confirmed in the United States even twice with two presses. So I understand that I confirm. So, okay, artificial insulin delivery, if you want, closed-loop insulin delivery, it's an independent decision from the system. So if the system would actually do a mistake, it's the system's guilt, right? Which makes sense. But we use many artificial intelligence assistance systems, like landing an airplane. Landing an airplane is a completely artificial intelligence endeavor. But the question is that uh, if so, artificial intelligence is um, developing in the direction where you know the inputs, you know the outputs, but you don't know how, how the reasoning went, you know. So, how can you still critically assess what the algorithm that is supposedly uh, more capable than a human made a mistake? The thing is, you know, that algorithms actually don't make mistakes. They're programmed what to do. So they are either correctly programmed or incorrectly programmed. But when programmed, they don't do mistakes. They can't do mistakes, hopefully. Right? So it's it depends on the design. And the liability goes with the person that designed it. There are instances when you actually understand that there is an error in the estimation. And you have to say how big the error is. And this is how this algorithms gets regulated. So you have to say at which decision step, how big the error is, and does the error increase with time or not. So you basically describe the, the, the brain behind the algorithm and the error that is embedded in the algorithm. But there are no mistakes that algorithms would do on their own. This doesn't exist. Right? So the liability always stays with the one that developed it or with the one that approved it because it must be crystal clear how the decision making process in an algorithm goes and how big at each step and cumulatively the mistake is. Number one. Number two, there are always risks. So you have to have an alarm system, a detection for alarm system. So whenever the system that overviews the algorithm realizes there will be a problem, You need an alarm. And most automatic systems, like automatic insulin delivery, goes to manual. And it alarms you. I am not sure I can solve this problem, so I switch back to manual. And you have to do something to start the automatic again. So this is the usual safeguards, actually, that are required, obviously, by the regulatory uh, bodies to make it as safe as possible. Obviously, not, no need to mention that the biggest danger is in individuals with diabetes. People do mistakes all the time. So hopefully we will reduce the number of mistakes, not increase the number of mistakes with the artificial intelligence. How fast do you see that AI algorithms can come in clinical practice since a lot of research is done in silico, so with computers to, to manage uh, new findings, but then... Algorithms also need to be tested in clinical absolutely. studies. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So no, no, no algorithm is improved by bodies like the FDA without proper, well-designed and really strictly conducted clinical trial. So this basically means that we can't really expect a faster introduction of new technologies because clinical trials take so much time. 
Well, they take time. They don't take so much time. I mean, you know, safety first, obviously. So, yeah, so you need so much exposure to so many individuals, you know, in different conditions, sport, eating, drinking, whatever people do, right? Mm -hmm. Before you can say this algorithm, this system, this artificial intelligence is safe enough in so and so many people, in so and so many instances for so long that we can assume that it's good enough to be used generally. And even then, it's a post-approval surveillance. Maybe we learn when this is used by thousands of people, something else. It's easy to survey because data are downloaded, are saved. So we see exactly what's happening, right? And if, you know, there is a health alert or, you know, something that really doesn't work very well, it's always, you know... Uh, a few months ago, Wired broke a story about two researchers that kept warning Medtronic about a glitch in their uh, in their uh, insulin pumps, and because the company didn't fix that, they actually design designed a sort of universal remote control for all these devices, just to show how important it is to be cognizant about the problems that can arise with the technologies and the the dangers that hackers could pose because Technology can be used for good and bad. So, how do you see the the, the potential problems with from people with bad intentions? Look, I mean, criminal activity exists since the beginning of manhood. You know, I mean, if you want, Adam started the sin, didn't he? So, you can always act in a criminal way. So, yes, you can hack any technology. You can hack health related artificial intelligence. But this is a crime, nothing else. So I think law enforcement agencies so very seriously follow this and persecute it. I mean, if you had hack an algorithm or a device of a person that basically needs to support her or his life, it's a very serious crime to me. But this is a question of criminal activity. It's not a question of artificial intelligence. If you want, good people develop artificial intelligence to help other people. And bad people develop things that, you know, would harm them. This is history of humankind. And the real, to me, reply to this is law enforcement agencies that would actually get these people and punish them. In your long-term clinical practice, how do you see that, uh, with the help of technology, technologies, um, the lives of people with diabetes are changing? Um, a few years ago, when I had an interview with you, and you, I said diabetic patients, you corrected me by saying that we, we you preferred the term people with diabetes. And this really made me think that... Um, uh, individuals don't want to be characterized with diseases because they have other interests, they have other ambitions that they want to be defined by. So I'm wondering, with the rise of new technologies, to which extent is the disease management going to be improved to the level that artificial intelligence, in a way, is going to bring more equality between the sick and the healthy? I do not accept the division of people to sick and healthy. I do not accept this. I believe you can call somebody a patient who is a patient for a week. No problem. A person breaks his or her leg, 
you do a cast or a surgery and the leg is repaired and the patient is no more a patient. I have no problem with this. If you get a disease that you know you will live with till the end of your life, I think the description of such individual as patient is unacceptable. You cannot be patient until the end of your life. Particularly so with diabetes. I mean, if you manage your glucose, in what way are you different from any other individual? So I, I, I really do not accept and I strictly oppose naming people with diabetes as patients. It's unacceptable. Can technology help? Of course. I mean, look, there were people that were deaf, completely deaf, because of inborn errors. And now you have cochlear implants and they hear. It's certainly technology, it's artificial intelligence. You implant and they hear, right? Here is very similar. We don't implant because, you know, it's complicated. There were times we implanted. They get considerable help. Will sensors be implanted very soon? You will see. There will be long-term sensors implanted. You will implant it. You'll forget about your measuring glucose. Your glucose will be on your watch, on your mobile phone, on your device. So yes, technology will considerably ease and modify the life of a person, individual, with a chronic condition. But they are not patients. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. For more content, visit www.facesofdigitalhealth.com, subscribe to the podcast, and of course, stay tuned.